Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, I know for some people the idea of working even so much as one day longer than you need to is about as appealing as munching on broken glass. But, and if I shift to my Ponzi scheme salesman voice, what if I told you that by working just one day longer, you could end up £10,000 better off in retirement? That's the possibility raised by XPS Pensions, who would seem to have found an exploit in the way short-term inflation measures are applied to benefit increases. So we'll go into that in a little bit more detail and explore the theory. Uh, next up, we've all been waiting a good long while for the next stage of the Defined Benefit Funding Code, but now a consultation has been published. It seems not everyone is satisfied with the outcome. Both LCP and Mercer, no relation, have warned that plans to hone DB funding requirements might in fact lead to the demise of DB schemes. So, just another day in policymaking. But why is that the case, and what, if anything, needs to change to avoid it? And finally, hell famously hath no fury like a woman scorned, but nobody seems to have told the Department for Work and Pensions, which begun incurring the wrath of the waspy women quite some time ago and is apparently content to continue incurring it. The DWP has been tardy in providing the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman with the information it needs to conclude its investigation into state pension age changes, though it seems that finally that investigation might be drawing to a close. So we'll take soundings on its likely outcome and explore what the next steps will be. I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter at Pensions Expert. I'm joined today by Laura Amin, partner at LCP, and by Patrick Bloomfield, partner at Hyman's Robertson. And thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you very much. And we'll, we'll kick off with the uh, theory that everyone likes money and everyone wants more money. Uh, so the suggestion by XPS Pensions that if you delay your retirement for a day, it could net you some £10,000 will probably sound quite good to people. I think the argument is that although long-term inflation expectations are falling, benefits are decided using short-term inflation projections. Those are due to be finalised next year. Of course, it does rely on these projections being correct. So if the Bank of England is telling you that inflation will fall, well, that's probably a pretty good reason to believe that it won't. Um, but it also requires that schemes review their early retirement factors to ensure members are actually able to make use of this little trick. And Laura, if I can kick off uh, with you on that, that's, of course, just a very bare bones laying out of, of the basics. But how exactly does this work then? So this is to do with the difference between the short term projections and the long term projections, isn't it? Um, yeah, and it's all about timing, to your point, Benjamin. So the statutory revaluation orders are based on September CPI always have been effectively, not that's not specific for this year. Um, and they come into effect from 1 January following year, in this case, 1 January 2023. So for members who are considering retiring, if they are, uh, or if they decide to retire to the point around the article on the 1st of January 2023 or thereafter, they may possibly benefit from the higher revaluation order based on the September 22 CPI, which could be north of 12% based on what we've heard from Andrew Bailey and, and other economists. Um, whereas if they were to retire earlier, uh, the day earlier, arguably, in the XPS um, article, they wouldn't benefit from that revalu higher revaluation order. I think that's obviously a very high level, uh, simplistic overview. It's worth thinking about early retirement terms, Benjamin, as you said, because for members who are deciding to retire before normal retirement date, before if, if that is next year, so when they would otherwise get that September increase, they should be fairly compensated in the early retirement terms. And most consultancies, uh, most schematories are advising trustees around potential adjustments to early retirement factors to allow for that kind of fair value to come through. While it's all good for us and our ivory towers, as it were, as schematories to advise on those adjustments, I appreciate administrators are potentially tearing their hairs out around a short term kind of adjustment to factors. So there are a number of considerations to take into account there in terms of practicalities of implementation. 
Sure thing. And Patrick, can I bring you in here? Um, obviously, administrators and workload is, is one consideration. Are there any other restrictions on, say, trustees' ability to revisit late reti- early retirement factors? Sorry, I mean, do they have to consult with employers over this? And if so, does it cost employers money if they do do this? Um, what, what other considerations are there for trustees? Well, you've got your usual lottery of rules here, Ben. So, so every set of rules will have powers here, there and everywhere. Common cases that trustees have control over these things with taking advice from their scheme actuary. Sometimes it's with the consent of the employer. You usually consult on these things as it's the employer picking up the cost of, of the scheme ultimately anyway. The, the sort of thing that I'm seeing is more around the communication side of it with members. And this is trustees wanting to give helpful pointers and forewarn members about making a decision that they might regret, but not being able to give financial advice and not straying over the line. So that's a really tough call at the moment. And putting in warning blocks in in letters or online modelers, those sorts of things is being pretty common, but then struggling to really go further and explain the nuts and bolts of how it will work and, and probably pointing members towards IFAs in many cases. And that's honestly not as practical as it should be trustees should be able to talk to their members about these sorts of things but we've we've tied ourselves up in so much red tape around advice it's just not possible anymore and that that probably raises the old advice guidance boundary questions again that have been rattling around for a couple of years and on that point around communication patrick i completely concur and and one particular group who probably require some specific communications as if there's any employed deferreds within the scheme who might enjoy a salary link still. Um, whereas if they decided to defer next year or before next year, they would receive then that higher 12% potentially uh, revaluation increase their benefit, which, I mean, if anyone's getting a salary increase rather than 12%, I might move to the company. So, you know, there could be benefit for a member at their close to retirement age and receiving that higher increase. And how do or do trustees communicate that to members? And, and where does that fall in terms of advice guidance boundaries as Patrick? saying i think the more trustees can do to warn people so that they get their decision right first time round the easier it is to draw a line under this if trustees decide it's just too difficult and stay quiet then it just increases the possibility of members regretting it afterwards asking it being really tough for trustees to say it was your decision it was your responsibility we can't we can't rob peter to pay paul and give you some more and then you can just see the flow of ombudsman's cases and everybody being generally a bit unhappy because they weren't feeling that we're well enough informed to make the right decision first time round. So that's the bit to really get on the front foot with just now and, and try and help people make the right decision to begin with. So things like your news article on it are great for getting the, the press out there and trying to get it into the mainstream. I think, of course, we're obliged to point out that subscriptions to Pensions Expert are free. So if you want to know what's going on, um, <laughs> just go and sign up. It, it doesn't take long, a couple of seconds. Just uh, finally, on the, this member comms angle, um, of course, this is largely sort of top down as we've discussed it so far, trustees taking the initiative. Is there any indication that members themselves are asking questions of their own accord? I mean, they're, because these are the people bearing the brunt of the cost of living crisis. So they'll be presumably looking for any and every way to, to maybe lessen some of that. Um, is there any indication that, that members are asking these questions already? Or is this very much something that trustees do need to exclusively take the lead on? Laura, if I come to you on that. Sure. So I, I think the main group of members that have potentially been um, active as pensioners. So pensioners who are concerned, who have their 
increased this year capped by virtue of say an NLPI 5 cap and are concerned about that or wish to understand the kind of what or if any discretion the trustee may have to provide increases above that and in particular obviously those kind of uh, pensioners who are, who are a bit more financially astute and aware of the increased rules etc. Um, on the deferred point that we've been discussing in kind of normal retirements etc I think there's less member awareness around that hence the as Patrick was saying, this kind of drive from the trustees potentially to pair comms that do raise that awareness um, to manage their risk, ultimately, trustees' risk. There's there's one more that I'd maybe looking forward to completely agree with Laura just now. We've had lots of members writing in saying these, these increases look a bit lean. What can you do for me, trustees, type questions. Looking forward, I, I am worried about upticks in transfer values or upticks in people retiring early to get their hands on their money. And then in a few years time, they've they started their, their pension income earlier. They're getting a lower amount every month than they might have done if they could have left it a few more years. The possibility of people falling into the hands of, of scammers and what have you and pensions unlocking. All these familiar tracks we've been looking at the last couple of years. It just increases the, the likelihood of people being tempted into it. So I'm a bit nervous looking forward. And I think all the, the anti-scam work that's going on in the industry is... It's been really good and we just need to see it bear fruit as we go through this next tough couple of years, I think. Sure thing. Excellent. Well, uh, on that note, I think we'll move on from the inflation angle and we'll come to the next topic, which, of course, is uh, the Department for Work and Pensions, which I believe published its consultation into DB funding. That was back in July. It was following the introduction of the Pension Schemes Act uh, the previous year. They set out the framework for the government's uh, proposals on the topic and the consultation itself closes on October the 17th. But some experts are already warning of some pretty, potentially at least, pretty dire consequences arising from plans to push schemes toward low dependency investment strategies. I believe the term straitjacket has been used by more than one, and that's not just referring to people who have to try and make sense of the Pension Schemes Act and the DB funding code. Uh, Is this another instance of we have to destroy the village in order to save it? I'll come to you first, Laura, on this, if that's okay, because I know um, LCP were kind enough to provide us with a comment on this. A particular angle. So what are some of the um, the concerns then to do with this push for low dependency? Uh, and I mean, some of the warnings have been quite dire, haven't they? I think some Mercer actually warned about the, the end of DB almost entirely, I believe. So, so what's the issue here? So I think the issue is that there is seems to be quite a um, black and white view of low dependency and by when based on the regs, albeit the detail is to come in the code, in terms of the references to schemes needing to be in this state of low dependency investment strategy and therefore funding strategy as well, by a time as significant maturity is measured by duration. And the indication is that that's a 12-year duration. Uh, looking at LCD clients, I mean, around 10% of our clients already at that 12-year kind of marker in terms of maturity and therefore arguably when the regs or if the regs come into effect in their current form will need to immediately be in this low dependency investment allocation and for schemes with weaker covenants um, where there may be some reliance on investment returns uh, otherwise to get them to that low dependency target there is the risk there of higher liabilities bigger gaps to fund and pressure on the covenant already weak covenant uh, in terms of cash contributions, particularly when the other element or another key element of the funding regs refer to those deficits needing to be recovered as soon as the employer can reasonably afford. And, and what does that mean practically? I mean, that's for the interpretation and further detail in the code, I'm sure. But is as soon as immediate, reasonably afford? What does that allow for or reflect in terms of investment returns and dividends and other competing pressures on cash flows for companies? So I think there is a concern out there. 
there is a need for more detail. And obviously the regs themselves are only one part of the picture. We are still to see the, the second funding co-consultation. And I guess that's my probably overarching concern at the moment is that the industry has been asked to comment on the regulations in isolation without seeing the full picture in terms of the funding code as well. And so it's a bit difficult when we don't see both sides of the coin, as it were, when we're when we're commenting. Sure thing. And, and Patrick, if I can bring you in on this then, of course, um, so there's, there's the threat potentially of some insolvencies. I think that uh, Sarah Smart, the TPR chair, did actually give an interview to the, to the Financial Times saying that there will be some schemes which will need to sort of plug a, a funding shortfall. I mean, is insolvency a significant concern? I think I think the figure we, we were given by LCB was about 5% could see the sponsoring employers asked to foot unaffordable levels of, of contributions. Is this the principal concern or is it one of a, a basket of things, which again, as, as Laura has said, is resulting from the, this lack of both consultations being published at the same time? I think it's one of a basket of things, but it, it's one of the hottest buttons right now. When you think of the part of the economic cycle we're going into, it looks like a recessionary downturn. We're seeing costs of borrowing go up. We're seeing inflationary pressures on business. Insolvency risk has been pretty dormant through the pandemic because we've had so much government support. And unless those taps get turned on very quickly, the chance of short-term insolvencies here looks looks really plausible. It looks like it'll make a resurgence. And frankly, the last thing businesses are going to need now is some pressure to settle a very long-term pensions liability when they're trying to make it through an economic trough. So you've got to question the, I don't know if it's wisdom or misfortune of the timing, but this has taken so long to come to the fore. And there's been been plenty of chances to try and get it away by now. And we just need to get it into industry and, and start it happening. I think the the sorts of angles that interest me more in this, if I sort of step away from the individual scheme stuff, is is the government's game plan for DB. And I see this really as a two-parter. They've been regulated out of existence with the layering on of inflationary increases in legislation in the past and the toughening up of funding. So there are some open schemes, but they're increasingly rare. And they're another odd one out in this setup here that this this new um, code does not cater well for open schemes and is like to put more pressure on them to close, which which is very unwelcome. And you're seeing some strikes in, in universities because of that. The government game plan here is really about DB schemes need to think about how they're going to run off over the long term and get themselves into a decent position so that it's a nice smooth runoff and no one's stressed and there's no financial distress on employers and they've got enough money in the kitty in case the employer goes bust on the way through. And frankly, that's all fine. When you, when you go back to the 2004 Act, this replaces, it was written much more with a kind of going concern mindset. So, so that update is welcome and it's probably appropriate, but it's just not nuanced enough. And that's the problem. That's these, the kind of one-size-fits-all comment you're seeing in industry is partly tackling that. Fair enough for well-organised closed schemes that are well into their running-off plans. This shouldn't cause any problems. But for those that need to pivot to get there, that's a harder journey. And now is probably not the right time in the economic cycle to be starting it. And the other one, this is this is the bit that really surprised me in the regs. I mean, I'm, I, this is a bit of a hobby horse for me, this whole topic of the last few years. And I was surprised how detailed the regs were. I was expecting something a bit broader, quite enabling. And then all of this detail would come through in TPR's regulatory code. And we would see fast track and bespoke set out, as has been talked about for the last couple of years. So no, no big surprises there. But we're starting to see more of the frameworking of this fast track to low dependency getting nailed down in the regs and that i think is a misstep i think before we were we were looking at this chance of provided you had the budget provided you were going to get proper advice provided you were going to run your scheme well enough trustees 
you can do what you like and justify to us that you're running the risks and you, your sponsor can support them. And this was called bespoke. What we're seeing here is more crowbarring into this kind of fast track mindset. And I think that's quite unhelpful. The, the, the government game plan again here is small schemes. We don't think you're spending enough on your governance. We would like to pressurise you into consolidating and into other governance models so that members' pensions are better off looked after. But I think this is a pretty clumsy, covert way of going about it, and it's going to have some unintended consequences. Sure thing. I mean, I know, I mean, sort of harking back to what you were saying about the need for it to be quite a smooth and, and long term, I think I think you mentioned. Uh, so Mercer's warned that uh, the draft proposals could force, say, the sale of, I think it's 500 billion in return-seeking assets, the majority of these uh, sort of before 2040. And then, of course, as you say, the, the general push toward low dependency does seem to be quite prescriptive. I mean, if, uh, Laura, if I come back to you on this question, I mean, is this, as Patrick suggested, it is too restrictive and perhaps too fast as well? I mean, what would need to be the case when we get the second consultation that to allay some of the concerns people seem to have about where we are at the moment? What would need to change or what would need to be clarified? I think there'll be a few points in your clarification. I mean, the extent to which Covenant can be kind of influential in terms of the timescales um, for reaching low dependency, if at all, based on the, the draft regs, perhaps not. On the point around prescriptive investment strategy, I mean, I, I do um, share Patrick's concerns and, and the concerns, I guess, um, expressed by Mercer around the low dependency investment strategy being kind of defined within the regs as being broadly cash flow matching and the assets being highly resilient to short-term market moves. I mean, broadly matching arguably LDI isn't an asset class that is broadly matching, whereas we appreciate its um, risk-reducing kind of capabilities in terms of when you're looking at the interest and inflation rate, long-term sensitivities of the liabilities, and looking at short-term market movements or or a strategy that's resilient to short-term market movements. Should that be the case? I mean, for years, we've been looking at pension schemes as longer-term investment uh, funds effectively and that still is the case for the vast majority even for those that are more mature and so will this drive uh, an unhelpful focus on the short term um, and kind of have inadverse consequences unless more detail is provided in the code around what those kind of elements or aspects mean in practice. So I think which is I guess we'll have to wait and see for that then. We'll move on from that to our final topic. Um, the DWP may have dallied in providing the PHSO with the information and evidence it needs to progress its investigation into the department's alleged failings with regard to the state pension age increase, which of course was much to the dissatisfaction of the WASPy women. Uh, but in an update published on August the 15th, the Ombudsman gave us a long-awaited uh, update into the second stage of that investigation. Apparently, it has shared its preliminary findings with interested parties, and it's also confirmed it's going to adjust its approach to the remainder of the investigation so it can more speedily reach a conclusion. And that conclusion could well involve compensation, but of course, we have to wait and see for that. Patrick, if I bring you in um, first here, it's been a long time coming, this, hasn't it? Is there a sense now that finally this investigation might be closed? I, I don't, well, what would be your time, expected time frame for when it will come to an end? <laughs> I think the, the government bodies would like to close it and get on with it. It's a question of whether they come up with the answer that the WASP and other campaigners would, would like. Um, if they come up with an answer that, sorry, this, the change is thick and we're changing the pension ages as planned and there's no compensation, then the public pressure will carry on and it will remain unresolved. So quite where that gets to, I, I find a really hard one to call. It, it's an interesting one for me, this, because there's strong parallels with our first piece about members retiring early. This is all about forewarning, advanced planning and and making decisions um, in your run-up to retirement. It's really hard to change things about your retirement savings once you've got into later life. 
And I think the, the, the waspy case in its entirety is that the government didn't work hard enough to let the affected women know that these changes were happening. So again, it's, it's less turning on, was it fair to increase state pension age, and more turning on, you just didn't let us know. You, you snuck these things out. They were in technical bulletins that we might read, but they didn't get into the mainstream and you really should have worked harder. And, and when you overlay that onto what working conditions were like in the 80s, 90s, noughties, before we became so DNI conscious and before working conditions for women were, were, were getting closer to that, that that men enjoyed at the time, it's, it's a reasonable case they've got here. And I think it's a tough one for the government to answer. Sure thing. Um, so I believe, I, I may, no, I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly. So the, the PHSO, it can't recommend, can it, that the law is reversed and it can't recommend that people be given earlier access to pensions than, than is required by law. And I know some of the campaign groups have been calling for that exact thing to happen. So I suppose they are inevitably going to be disappointed uh, if they, well, because the PHSO can't give them what they want. So it does, it, would it, am I right in thinking it does, it does now turn exclusively on the question of compensation if the PHSO believes that the DWP was incorrect. Laura, what, what would you, if you were to project as well, uh, given I've already asked the difficult question to Patrick, w- mm-hmm. would you predict compensation will be offered? Uh, and if it's so, is it possible to say in what order of magnitude? So I think the only option, as you say, Benjamin, is compensation. I think there's already been the acknowledgement that there was maladministration by DWP in terms of the timings of the communications to these women. But I suspect that we understand that the second stage report has been shared with the complainants, um, DWP um, and the uh, MPs. But I suspect that that was done so in order to manage expectations and potentially to manage expectations around the level of any compensation or any uh, injustice that was deemed to have occurred and therefore the level of any compensation based on the scale that relates to that injustice that might be received by these women. So um, unfortunately, I think compensation will be at the lower end of anyone's expectations and certainly not uh, attuned with what these women have been um, well, certainly not attuned with the losses that some women have, have, have incurred effectively and in, in tune with their expectations of the outcome of this review. Indeed, one of my best friend's mums is one of the WASPY women. And as soon as she found out I was starting to work at Pensions Expert, she was, uh, well, she's not stopped talking about it since, but you can kind of see why. Um, mm. Just going back on this member comms question then, because of course, I mean, that's come up a few times during just in the course of this podcast. And we've had the whole brouhaha around state pension aid changes recently, have lessons been learned by the DWP when it comes to future state pension change ages or, or has the sort of, I guess we can call it the kerfuffle around the most recent attempt to change the ages uh, sort of proven that this mistake, okay, it's happened once, but they haven't quite learned the lessons from that and it might happen again. Is that a fair assessment of Patrick, if I come to you on that? I think the, this question has been ducked by successive governments and it's going to be around to haunt us for a really long time yet. The, the problem is the price tag on retirement ages is really high. It's politically unpalatable. So who wants to introduce it to the electorate? Yet to, to balance the national finances, it's essential. We're all living longer. If we want to have the same sort of standard of living in retirement, we either need to consume less while we're working or work for longer and be retired for a shorter period. So it's oh, it, it, it's a really difficult one. And I, I the, probably the most interesting call I've seen is to have a state pension age equivalent of the Monetary Policy Committee. So that the state pension age would be set by an independent body to try and depoliticise it. But when the writing's on the wall about which direction state pension age needs to go in, that's just kind of outsourcing the inevitable to my mind. So with the pressure we've got on public finances from pandemic, upcoming recession, fuel inflationary spikes, 
there are big social questions that need answering about retirement ages, retirement incomes, um, inheritance tax, later life care and care home costs, which we were all talking about in the pandemic, which wasn't so very long ago. These really need pulling together into a proper national debate and to have some coherent strategy, which which hasn't existed for the last couple of years. Sure thing. I, for one, am very much looking forward to being able to retire at the age of 88, which I'm sure is the age it will be by the time I finally get there. That does, I think, bring us to the close of the principal part of the programme. We do, of course, have always a pensions angle. And Patrick, I think you had one for us this week. Yeah, it's, it's a good news story. I love this one. This is um, the Green Sea offshore wind farm that went live this week. So this is the, the new wind farm in Scotland, generating enough power for up to a million homes in the UK. The tenuous pensions link for this was we're, we're getting our first round of schemes doing their TCFD disclosures. This is their task force for climate related financial disclosures saying about what their strategy is for managing climate risks in their schemes. And this, this whole government green initiative to encourage investors to drive the change to a green economy. So this year we've got over five billion pound schemes coming out. Next year it rolls out to over a billion and, it, and it's getting some momentum. But I really like this this thought that Green Sea's gone live now, and this hasn't happened super quickly. This plan has taken a decade to bring to fruition. We've been working at this for a really long time. So whilst climate change might be a fairly recent headline thing, this has taken a lot of hard work by a lot of people for a long time, really far forward looking. And, and it's bigger than that. So this uh, Green Sea itself, million homes, so we've got, let's call it 28 million homes in the UK. So that's 4% of homes from one offshore wind farm. And then we look at the other offshore wind farms of the last couple of years. 2020, we had a Hornsea One go live. That is 1.2 million homes. 2021, we turned on the North Sea Link, bringing in hydroelectric power from Norway. That's another 1.4 million homes. And then later this year, we should get Hornsea Two going live, which will be the largest offshore wind farm in the world, with another 1.3 million homes catered for. So just these four plans alone get us to just shy of a fifth of all homes. That's fantastic that this isn't a front page story, that we're not all high-fiving each other at the petrol pumps over the fact that we've we've got a fifth of our sustainable electricity and fuel independence is is really sad. And I think we could do an awful lot more to, to praise this. And the pension schemes that have been in the vanguard of funding these sorts of things and investing in them should be doing pretty well out of their returns on this. And there's, there's a growing investment opportunity to stand on the shoulders of these giants. It's always nice to end on a positive, always a pensions angle as well, considerable the doom and gloom in the rest of the world. Um, that does then bring us to the close of the programme. So thank you both very much to Patrick and to Laura for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening to us. We will as ever be back in two weeks time and we hope we will see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.